Hello, everyone. Welcome back. This is Julie Bates with the podcast, Training the Pointing Labradors, episode number 201. And in today's episode, it's a few days late, I'm going to answer again a few more listener questions about young dogs um, and some of the aspects of young dog training. Um, it's, I'm not, I should be out getting ready to, to go up north where they're having a lot of the pointing lab tests right now. I had planned with all my clients to go run multiple tests and stuff like this. And I, I'm not able to do it because even though I'm no longer married, I'm still uh, engaging in the, um, the battles apparently that happen with that. Unfortunately, I didn't, I didn't, never did see need for battle, but it's uh, been extraordinarily difficult for me to, to deal with this stuff and animosity. It's just, man, so much not my thing. And so I'm unable to just leave and, and leave some of my dogs behind, and I can't do any of that. So I won't be out as much as I had promised people, and I'm sorry about that. I loved uh, getting up to South Dakota and, and meeting some new people and seeing some old friends. And perhaps it's sometime in the future I can get back to the freedom of being able to go and do what I what I need to do. But so I'm gonna I'm gonna address listener questions uh, that I've received not out traveling on the road. And one of them was uh, somebody that has a young dog bought a dog from Pointing Lab Breeder uh, from Dogs Which Point and has been getting advice because the dog is just a, a puppy. He knows that he's supposed to go get the dog on on birds and you know all the things that most of us to some to varying degrees in the pointing lab world do, and <clears throat> was told that that was the wrong approach. And was told one never the old one we've all heard this so much never teach a pointing dog to sit, <laughs> um, and all of the well trained and successful pointing lab people all have dogs that sit. And they use sit in a lot of appropriate places. When your dog is running on a blind retrieve, Mach 3 out there, and you blow that sit whistle, they need to turn around and drop it right there. And that's the way they understand it best. So I know I, every reputable pointing lab trainer and amateur pointing lab person I know has sit be one of the early things and one of the PowerPoints that you have. So I understand that pointing breeds don't find that useful. However, the retriever people do. And so, um, I, you know, I don't tell people how to train their German short hairs, and I kind of wish they wouldn't tell the retriever people how to how to you know train the retrievers. So yes, sit is very important, and it's very important on young dogs. And when they learn it early, you don't sit out in the upland field. When they're on birds, there's none of that stuff. But when you're teaching them fundamental response to you and respect, that's one of the best ways. On that topic, one of the other things he had said was um, that they said, don't do obedience on a young dog. <laughs> oh, God. Don't do it. They need to be crazy. You can do that later. They just need to have this crazy part first. So I'll harken back to last week's and the week before's podcast where I talked about neural paths in dogs and the ones that you let them grow up with from puppyhood into teenagedom are the ones that they have. And if that is wild and crazy with no response, no respect, no dedication to the teamwork thing, um, you got a lot bigger of a challenge there than if you teach him that earlier. He said they had said that that'll kill their uh, desire to hunt. 
you know, and I'm just thinking back over the hundreds and hundreds of dogs that were incredible hunters um, that also learned obedience early. So I had all the synapse paths within the right place. <laughs> it worked really well. So I'm sorry that, that there's some of that information out there, and maybe there's some breeds for which that applies completely. But I'm not going to talk about those breeds that I don't know. And for our pointing labs, um, grow the neural paths you want. <laughs> make sure, make sure that they think you're important. They can learn to listen. They don't need. There's no upside to crazy. Crazy does not equal great hunter. What equals great hunter is high desire, clarity on what the job is, clarity on the expectations, and then a lot of experience. That's what makes that good. So that, that was a tough one. And um, so I think that when other people who train for other things or people who train other breeds or people who train with an entirely different philosophy doesn't mean anyone's really wrong, but it just means they know what they know and it doesn't directly apply over somewhere else. I've had a lot of people try to sell, send me uh, English pointers and some other uh, other pointing breeds, and I always say, no, I, if I had one of those, I wouldn't send it to me. I would send it to somebody that's trained hundreds of them and let them do that. And so on our pointing labs, get your advice from people who have done a lot of pointing labs at a, to the highest level and truly understand the mentality and stuff like that. And so one of the contentions in that group also is that, you know, these guys are kind of phony pointers. And it's a, this is just even too old to discuss. It's just too old to discuss. Because all of us who do this and have been out in the field where, you know, our pointing retrievers are out there running at Mach 2 and then slam a 180-degree point with one foot up in the air and, you know, and their ear over their face um, because they are that good of pointers. And so, yeah, there are some real mediocre ones. There are some not very good ones. There are some that could have been good, but their contrary training kind of made it look bad. But when you have a really good dog and you really give them the opportunity, that is absolutely beautiful. It's a musical thing. And I know a zillion people that have those and don't even need to hear any of this. But for new people, um, I wish they could talk to just the people who have had a bunch of these things and really uh, understand what it is. It's not phony. And your dog can sit and they can be respectful and they don't have to be crazy. And they don't, the other thing that was involved in this discussion too, he'll be getting a kick out of this if he's listening to it, was that, man, they are dying to shoot over these dogs. And they were trying to shoot over his dog. I mean, this was early first bird exposures. Uh, that's a, for, for our dogs who tend to be kind of mentally sophisticated, relatively speaking, there's some hairballs out there, you know, but they don't, we don't teach them everything at one time or we don't when they're real young create one association and then hold it for life you know birds guns birds guns there's a, actually a very logical sequence so that there's never gun shyness there's never any downsides to anything hide it you know exposure to birds for upland dogs exposure to birds so that light bulb comes on and they understand that independent kind of work retrieving retrieving of bumpers if they'll go get a frozen bird yay but retrieving out and back with this thing. And when they develop a high passion for that, then we can just associate that with gunfire. 
And then when they do that really well, we can go out in the upland field and shoot some birds over them because they know what gunfire means, and that's go get it. And in a sequential way like that, they do understand, and there's no fear. Everything is in context. So for pointing retriever people, uh, don't be in a hurry for gunfire. It, it, the gunfire will come at the right time, and they'll clearly understand it. But without the passion before that, it can have some real detrimental effects. So that would be uh, my advice on that particular thing. And it, it's disturbing to hear people kind of get backwards advice and get the dogs that we're all here talking about getting a little bit <laughs> insulted. It's funny. I, you know, I used to engage in argument. I just don't care anymore. <laughs> it just doesn't matter to me at all. I had one set of my clients um, that have two four-time grandmasters, triple crown qualified, really, really, really good pointers and really well-trained. And uh, they went to a, a local checker challenge here in the state, which was all close to this other place, which was all about mostly short hairs and a few others. And they went in there and asked if, you know, can we, they wanted to participate. The people were really nice to them. Well, sure. So they were going to go out in the field, and the, one of the judges said, how are we going to know uh, when your dog points, is on point? <laughs> and he, it was funny I'm sure he had to think for a minute you had to answer that and he goes oh you'll probably know it'll, it'll probably be okay and of course it was and she went on to place in the cha in the finals on that thing a lady with a chocolate pointing lab beat a bunch of the other people so it was it was good but that's the kind of stuff you get how will we know when your dog's pointing <laughs> uh, alright so Retriever people, I guess there still is the kind of bias against it. And, you know, and sometimes with reason, there's some dogs that just really don't look very good. But there's also short hairs and English pointers that don't look very good either. So um, just stay the course and involve yourself, you know, with um, people with experience, preferably a lot of experience with these dogs. And you'll find your way out of that. And then you can help the next new guys. Next one I'm going to talk about on a similar vein on this one was because I got one, uh, an inquiry from the other side of the country where somebody was curious because they've been getting a lot of advice and reading you know, and YouTubing and all that on, on bird exposure. And there are a variety of ways that people do bird exposure. There isn't just one way. You know, whatever I tell you, that's what you have to do. That's not it. Depending on the dog and the location and the situation, and many, many things, there's a lot of different ways. I've talked to some pros I respect a lot that do it differently from me. But they compile the other aspects of their program well together, and it all comes out well. So I'm not saying this is a way to do it. I'm just going to say what I've uh, come to do. Again, I've said it many, many times. Um, so people can understand at least, at least what I want to give you is a way to think about it. Now, I... I believe that as soon as a, a puppy can mentally grasp what's happening, that's the time to start. So for some little dogs, that's flat out eight weeks. They can, they can, you, they can encounter a scent of a live bird and they just lock up. Um, they don't know what they're doing, but they lock up. And so with, you know, weekly exposure to that kind of thing, you really bring it out. You know, I think G, G's mom, I had her on the Facebook page, G's mom. Man, the first bird she was ever on, she locked up. I get G, a G daughter, first bird she was ever on, locked up. 
Two other daughters from a previous litter, first birds those dogs were on, they locked up. And then they always did after that. We had to go through a lockup and then, oh, I want to bust it stage in the teens, but they always pointed. And part of what helped that was the fact that that was kept in their awareness. That was kept in their weekly routine. And I know that's hard to do, but <clears throat> it, it made some really good dogs um, because that aspect of them in balance with all of the others was brought out. Now, the first way that they were, when they were little like that, eight weeks, and not all of them get it at eight weeks. I've said before, you know, they'll just stop right, stop right over it like they don't even know it's there, you know, or think it's something to eat. And it, it, all kinds of strange things. But when mentally they can, that bunch of connections in their brain can work, you know, then, then you can continue to do it. Until that happens, you got to keep waiting and see until their little development kind of supports that. But the way I've, I've always done it, the quail were my favorite, but I can't keep quail. You know, because they're little and they're nice and, and you can just put them in some cover and they kind of stay there for a minute, but they're not, you don't dizzy them and, you know, lock them up in something. Those were always really good. I'd love to have them encounter uh, quail. But I have checker. That's all I can house. And so that's what I use. So I will put a checker that isn't just going to fly away the minute you're within 30 feet of it. So I have it somewhere kind of tucked. And usually I think I've mentioned I get one that maybe isn't, they've been whooping on or or just doesn't feel very good or is just kind of failing to thrive and I'll tuck that one down somewhere where it can the scent is easy to get out not in heavy deep stuff but just I like to put it in the kind of wood of a sagebrush sagebrush puts off a lot of scent so but it just where the wood part of it is and just stick them in there and then just bring the little dog downwind and then whatever happens happens and if they go in and get it, it at least can run or fly away um, and if they point it, then there we are. You know, we got a dog that's pointing. But it has to be something that they can't readily grab, um, if possible. And it has to be something that when they do go in towards it, that it can get away. And that's it. I mean, that's it. We're not shooting guns. We're not <laughs> trying to teach a bunch of stuff at one time. We're trying to wake up this little ancestral thing in them so that this pointing behavior... Uh, can come out and we can see it so that's all you want and you don't want to be telling them what to do and leading them up to it and imparting any kind of pressure on them at all and I, I mean when you just walk up to the bird and stand there and like expect a dog to get over by you that's pressure on a dog so you want them to just be just in a little puppy mindset, do 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 tootling along, just smelling and looking at stuff and encountering reasonably close so that you know they get the scent. There has to be a breeze. You don't want them to have to be standing on it to smell it. Um, where they get this, this scent that might be very compelling to them. And then you stay out of it. You don't encourage. You don't, because any noise you make for whatever reason you think you have, that distracts them from this engagement with this bird smell. So in my book, when I'm doing this, I'm not a part of it. I mean, they'll be walking with me, and we're going to go downwind not too far, maybe four, five, six feet, depending on conditions and stuff. We're going to walk downwind and just give this dog an opportunity to encounter this. Now, if they miss it, 
I'll keep on walking and maybe we'll come back around one more time and see if we can get it again. But I'm not going to like encourage and go look at it and, and do any kind of pressure because now I'm intervening in this bird dog connection that I don't want to have. That's a hard thing in the beginning for people to do because you just so want to see the point and you so want to make this happen. And so you got cords on them and you got launchers on the bird and you got all kinds of stuff there. And for me, just a real purist, I just like for that to occur on its own. Sometimes you can get the birds back, sometimes you can't. But you need that dog on its own, inside of its own head, to begin to noodle this out. So that's probably one of the most important things on bird introduction, in my opinion, is not to get involved, merely provide the opportunity. When you start to get involved with these is when... Um, you know, they start getting real aggressive. Now they know what to look for, and now they're going to go in there, and you can't have a weaker one because they'll just grab it. So then you have to start uh, changing the situation and changing the circumstances. you got to have birds that if they do bust in there can fly away. Um, I, again, I don't use launchers because they can smell a launcher. Pretty soon you'll have them pointing launchers, don't even have to have a bird in them. So and other people do it just fine. I don't do that because I've seen birds smell gl uh, point gloves, shotgun shells, bumpers, and launchers. So I try to just have nothing but a bird out there with as least amount of my scent as possible. So when you do handle them, don't grab them by the whole body with your stinky duck smelling gloves or any of that. Try to impart as little scent to it as possible and just have um, a bird there. So... Do that until it become they become aggressive if they do. And again, you don't want to do it more. Oh, let's do it tomorrow and the next day and next day, in my opinion, because we tend to get out of balance. Again, that's a very independent kind of thinking. They're just out tootling around and then they get this scent and then they do their thing and then they go after it or chase it or whatever. It's all, if, if that's the greatest number of neural paths you're developing in the dog, then you're losing the other ones like wait, watch, focus, we're doing retrieving, so watch this, go out, get it, you come right back. A far more dependent kind of thinking and a little bit different set of neural paths. So you want to make sure you got a balance of all of those while this little dog is growing up, including the obedience responsiveness thing, you know, where they do know they're supposed to pay attention if you make a sound. Um, so... <laughs> That's, that's the reason not to um, do just a bunch of upland birds because you're so thrilled over the dog pointing. And, and, but do that with some frequency, with some continuity, definitely. Balanced out with those other you know, things that you're trying to develop in the dog at the same time. I will say that's always been the key to my success. And having dogs do things young uh, successfully without a lot of pressure or you know, pushing them too hard just because it's all in balance and you keep it going along with all the wheels at the same inflation, you get a much smoother ride than if you just air one up at a time. So bird introduction is that as they begin to get aggressive, um, you know, then you have them flying away or you have different stuff. You can begin to use some control things. Um, not tell, I don't think you can, you know, de-chase or wool break or anything when they're just really really young because that's a little bit out of context but after they get you know their obedience and their force fetch and their collar conditioning then you can start introducing that but you don't introduce the control until you have the passion 
No control until you have the passion. As I was taught by the English pointer people, bold on birds comes first. Bold on birds comes first. And that's not a very hard thing to do when they like them. So about the time when you're going, okay, I need to rein this in because I'm going to lose this dog is when you start your formal training, your obedience and stuff, and you can start to, to rein them in in the upland field. You can rein them in everywhere else already, which is a real good idea. Okay, um, final thing on this, and that is uh, talking. The, the talking of the, the handler and the trainer and the dog and how much, what value is that? What's the best way to do it? Because you see uh, everything. You see people that are basically engaged in a conversation. Lot, just lots of stuff coming out of their mouth all the time. That's like the old far side comment where the guy's talking to Ginger. Ginger, and, and all, well, you see what Ginger's hearing is Ginger, blah, 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 blah. So there are people who talk basically all the time they're with their dog and have a lot of words that they use. Usually it seems like the reason for that is because is that's how they are. They like, they're very verbose. They like to talk. They like to express things. They like have a lot to say all the time. And they always, that's their way of interacting is by talking. And then you get, you know, as we slide back down the scale, you get people who don't do that so much, but they use when they're working with their dogs or doing simple things, sometimes two, three, four, five uh, words for a single kind of an action. And then there's people if you, like me who I just say one thing. <laughs> I don't know if I'm smart enough to have a lot of stuff in there. I don't think that way. Part of the reason I don't think that way is because I'm trying to be more in the head of my dog than in my own. I got this stuff to be in my own head. But over there, I need to be in theirs. And for me, again, I'm just saying what I have found. The greatest success I have with dogs is if when I say something, they believe it's significant and they understand it, clearly understand it. But when you have a series of words that you use that are, are communicating several things to a dog, it, for me, that's a mistake. I don't think dogs think sequentially several things. Do, 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 do. I think that they get a rhythm going and you, you make these sounds. And then finally, if you're sending them on a retrieve or releasing them in the upland field, they know that release and they go. But they know there's some gobbledygook that comes before that. And so I would at least ask people to consider what it is literally they are communicating to their dog when they are talking and making noise. I always do that with my clients. I say, so what are you, what are you telling this dog to do? What are you saying to this dog? And then there's usually some silence because they haven't run that through their head yet. But when they cue it and say it and then affirm it and then correct it and then tell them, no, not that, and then they have this, okay, it's a go because their mind works that way. I'm going to tell you, I don't believe dogs' minds work that way. They're sort of enduring the pattern and they kind of know what you do and they know when that one word that they need to go on happens or when the sit, they got to sit, or whatever it is. They know that. But a lot of that is noise. And when they have to listen for the right noise, then we don't have their focus 
on whatever it is we want their focus on. And focus is intensity, and that's often what gives us the best results in the things when we're teaching with dogs and when we're executing and performing and doing whatever it is we do with our dogs. The focus is really important. So if we have a lot of stuff to say because we feel we're communicating this linear set of thoughts, okay, no, you're not, no, it's not to the right, no, it's not to the left, no, don't do that, okay, no, now you're right, okay, now I'm ready to send you. All of that, they, their minds do not work like that. So, and, and when you're anywhere you're talking to them a lot, you become basically background noise like a fan in the background. And then to get them to pay attention, you've got to raise your decibel level or your intensity or you've got to do something instead of them responding to the single word that you have. So if you're doing something simple, like let's just say heel and sit, right? Heel means walk at my side, sit means to sit. Find out, pay attention when you're doing it because most people are in autopilot when they're doing this, autopilot. And they're not really thinking about the minutia of what they're doing. They're just kind of seeing the whole activity. But when you are walking with a dog and saying heel and sit, there's no place for no. Because I always ask everybody when they say no, their dog drops a bumper. And they say no. I always say no what? What is your dog to do with that? What action can your dog take when you say no? And always the answer is, well, they need to stop doing something. Well, that's not an action. Right? That's not an action. If I'm climbing a ladder and you tell me no, I'm probably going to climb back down the ladder. So I'm still, and that's, that's a smart, intelligent human. When a dog drops a bumper and you tell them no, you expect them to go, oh, I dropped that and I wasn't supposed to. So I'll just pick it up and hold it now. That's not really how that works. We're just saying no because we don't want them to do that. I don't want you to drop the bumper. That's not a teaching thing. The dog doesn't respond to negative things. Dogs respond to and understand when you give them an action to take. So if you're saying no because they spit out a bumper or no because they didn't sit or they kept walking in front of you, there's not an action they can take for that. But if instead, if the dog spits out the bumper and you reach down and put it uncomfortably unpleasantly back in its mouth and bump it under the chin and tell them what they're supposed to do. Hold. Okay? And with some enforcement, hopefully. Not just a reminder, but some enforcement so they don't want you to do that again. Or if the dog is healing in front of you and you don't want them to and you say no, <laughs> I don't know what they're supposed to do with that. But if they're healing in front of you, do a 180, turn the other direction and tell them to heal because they're not keeping up with you. Or enforce a sit, which, believe it or not, keeps them from pulling ahead. If every time they start pulling ahead and you enforce a sit with a pop on the bottom or whatever way you use, they're going to quit pulling forward because they don't want that enforcement. But you're giving them actions to take, and that's very important. So even, you know, I know people when they're running blind retrieves and stuff and their dog's looking, here, no, here, no, here, no, here, ah, right, go, um, I have never found that necessary. It's a lot better if you develop a rhythm between the two of you, where you're facing, where your hand goes down if you use a hand, where they're looking, send them when they're looking the right way. But the conversation and the words and stuff like that uh, is makes people feel like they're doing something and that they're interacting with the dog and that maybe even they're in some kind of control. 
but it's far more, within my experience and observation, far more about them feeling better when they're jammering about stuff than when they're actually in the head of that dog going, what can I say to make this be simple and clear and get what we both want out of this? So just something to think about. If you like to talk a lot and it works for you, keep right on talking. But sometimes speaking less and being more in their head and, and communicating only what needs to be communicated, only what is useful to the dog, not what you think is useful, but what actually is useful to that dog, can make a little bit of a difference on this stuff. All right, so those are the three things that I wanted to address today. Slightly shorter, not much, than most of these things. Um, and I... Uh, springtime we actually had rain here that was that was really a godsend we need some rain fires all over this part of the country um, I hope everyone is doing well COVID's kind of raising its ugly head again so I hope hope you stay healthy and safe and enjoy doing your dog work sorry I'm going to miss some of you this this uh, spring and summer but maybe I can get back there somehow so I, I hope everyone's doing well and G and I will be back soon <music>